Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. I think our faith essentially is a response to what God has already done and is doing in Christ for us. Prayer is always a kind of listening, a tuning in, an awareness of God. Because even the apparent curse of Babel, the creation of thousands of language, was itself a blessing because language itself is a blessing. The Living Church serving the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. Welcome, podcast listeners. It's a delight to be with you in the first week of Pentecost, and I'm so eager to share with you our episode today. I know many of you listening are artists, musicians, writers, lovers of beauty, literature, good poetry, a good pint or pipe. And as you probably know, I really believe that that combination of art, beauty, and Christian life is a fascinating and a life-giving one, and one that's not far off the mark of the work of Pentecost, which is always the work of the renewal of creation and the bringing of everything good into God's own eternity. Many of you today will have heard of our guest, poet, priest, musician, and motorcyclist Malcolm Geit. I first met him at a job at Duke Divinity School. I was working for Duke Initiatives in Theology and the Arts, and I can say there is truly no end to interesting conversation with this man. And though I had him on to talk about the threads of relationship between poetry and Pentecost, our conversation took us to many unplanned places while still returning, interestingly, to the themes of Pentecost, language, breath, movement from isolation to integration and how the creation itself, undersprung with music, longs to be tuned back to the note that Jesus played perfectly, once for all. The Reverend Dr. Malcolm Geit is an English poet, singer-songwriter, Anglican priest, and scholar. His research interests include the intersection of religion and the arts, the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, and Owen Barfield, and British poets such as Samuel Taylor Coleridge. He was a bifellow and chaplain of Girton College, Cambridge, and associate chaplain of St. Edward King and Martyr, Cambridge. Please check out his books of poetry. There are rich minds of devotion and enjoyment, as well as his books on faith and theology. And I'll include a link to his bookshelf in the show notes today. Now from the Tower of Babel to Beowulf, from Keats and Shelley to singing in tongues, we hope you enjoy today's conversation. Well, Malcolm, thank you for coming on the podcast today. I'm delighted to do so. You're a, something of a C.S. Lewis scholar, are you, Malcolm? Yes, I, I've always, well, I've loved Lewis from, from the get-go. You know, I mean, I sort of had three goes at Lewis, as it were, because I, I loved the Narnia books as a child and have carried on reading them into adulthood. And then, then when I became interested, actually at the time I was a sort of atheist stroking, sort of, sort of shading into agnostic. But when I was in the sixth form and then coming up as an undergraduate to Cambridge, I re-encountered Lewis as a literary critic. So suddenly there was a new Lewis for me there. And then as I came back to faith, both Narnia and then Lewis as a theologian and mere Christianity and miracles and so on. So I've, I've kind of had three different facets of Lewis help me personally. Yes. Okay. So in all these journeys with Lewis, do you know this little factoid, which is that 
Lewis was instrumental in making sure that J.R.R. Tolkien finished The Lord of the Rings. Oh, absolutely. And that it yeah. was published. Yeah, Tolkien actually said at one point, Lewis was his only reader, as it were. Lewis was getting it in manuscripts and saying, keep going. We wouldn't have The Lord of the Rings without Lewis. I mean, I, you know, I think Tolkien would have given up. You know, he also helped to, you know, publicise the writings of Charles Williams, and I think he's still a bit neglected. I think it was Tolkien who wrote who wrote the little the little Clarehue, the little squib. The sales of Charles Williams leapt up by millions when a reviewer surmised he was Lewis disguised. <laughs> well, the Inklings are such a wonderful study in friendships, in literary and artistic friendships. And today we're going to be talking in part about your vocation as a poet, which is sometimes I think perceived as a lonely off on the moors by yourself, the wind blowing in your hair and you feel lonely and depressed. And that's your, you know, that's sort of your vocation. Yeah. And, yeah, it's a sort and of, how it looks. that's a kind of almost a parody of a, a certain romantic idea of the, the poet as the sort of lofty and lonely genius. I mean, of Tortured. course, it, it's, it's kind of false in the sense that even if you happen to be alone at the moment of composing poetry, it is a fundamentally communal thing because you're using language. And language is always the product of a community and a people and a tribe. And you all the words you use are older and wiser than you are and come from somewhere else. And of course, almost all poets who are, you know, achieve anything as poets had a kind of nurturing and formation from all the poets before them. Everybody is formed by Shakespeare and Dunn and, and um, Hopkins and, you know, in a sense, there's a community almost like a kind of literary equivalent of the communion of the saints before mm -hmm, you read mm -hmm. the cloud of witnesses. I mean, I think in my case, in terms of my vocation as a poet, came to me in my mid to late teens, I was about 16 or 17, very largely by being completely smitten with the poetry of Keats. I I um ah. I visited Keats's house and um read the Ode to a Nightingale, sort of up on the wall of the room where the where the magic casements opened, as it were, and went into the garden where where the nightingale had sung. And I was really unprepared for it. It was astonishing. I had no idea language could do that or sound like that. So I immediately got Keats and Shelley, then Shelley, then Byron. So I was very much immersed in the in the romantics. Now that was at a time when and this is in the 70s, and and actually the romantics were out of fashion in a sense. Eliot and others had sort of I mean, dismiss them in some sense as immature, you know. But so I did begin with that sense of the vocation as kind of inward and lonely. And then I realised that in a weird way, although the romantics were out of fashion, contemporary poetry had carried on that arc where the poetry was this odd, peculiar person, you know, using language in a very strange, fractured way. In a way, because Eliot had said, oh, poetry in the modern world has to be difficult in order to be good. And people have made the assumption that if it's difficult, it is good, which is not at all the case. And I think there's a huge amount of poetry that went down that line and became very obscure and inexplicable and difficult. And even when you could understand it, it turned out that the poet was giving you another adventure in the little world of me. You know, it wasn't, it was so confessional. So there was a point at which I rebelled against that. And I, I think you can write poetry which is accessible and lucid without it being shallow or platitudinous. I think, you know, Tennyson did it. You know, hugely profound poet, but, you know, hugely popular. Shakespeare did it. Again, profound, hugely popular. That, that, that this modern, high modernist idea of a kind of elitist obscurity began to disgust me. But I was therefore completely out. And it also, at the same time, I felt the other side of modern poetry was that it would, had completely abandoned form and beauty and music in language. It was so fragmented. It was just little kind of fragmented notes to self. So that kind of feeling was also happening to me at the same time I was exploring my vocation to priesthood and had become, you know, more thoroughgoingly a Christian. And it seemed to me that Maybe instead of wry little notes to self or sort of footnotes, you know, ironic, terse, obscure footnotes to life, I, I could write about the things that concern us in a way that we could all understand about love and loss and bringing our tragedies to the cross and, 
and that this, you know, we're story keepers as Christians, that there was some way of articulating that and that I could use form and use sonnets and villanelles. I mean, the difficulty, it took me a long time. I had a very long apprenticeship from that. I didn't, you know, I didn't publish anything until I was, you know, I didn't publish any books. I published the odd poem, but I didn't publish anything until I was in my 50s, which considering I started wanting to be a poet, in my teens, it's not a long. Malcolm, that is incredibly encouraging. Yeah, you and know. to me as a writer, I hope it will be to other people yeah. too. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I hope so. So don't give up. <laughs> but the, the great challenge for me, when I first fell in love with Keats and wanted to write poetry, I wrote a lot of slushy poetry. It was completely rejecting the modern world altogether. I just thought. I was born in the wrong century. I'm just going to be Shelley. <laughs> no, I don't care. I'm going to write it like that. But of course, it, that, it was pastiche. It wasn't working. It was full of quaths and prithies and doths. You know, it's absolutely no good at all. So the thing I had to learn, and I think I learned this mostly from Philip Larkin, who was a contemporary poet who really did use form beautifully, and to some degree from the sonnets of Geoffrey Hill, I, be, I tried to teach myself how to use that sound, get a beautiful Keatsian music, and use forms like the sonnet, but not have archaisms, not end up saying, you know, mountains green instead of green mountains or anything, you know, try and use contemporary syntax, a contemporary voice, and yet still have that melody. So at the beginning of my book, my book of poems, Singing Bowl, there's, a, there's an invocatory sort of prefatory poem, which is the title poem, Singing Bowl. And the opening line of that is, or lines is begin the song exactly where you are. Remain within the world of which you're made. Call nothing common in the earth or air, accept it all and let it be for good. You know, start with the very breath you breathe in now. Now, that was quite a hard lesson for me to learn because I am a romantic and I was a romantic born in a bleak modernist age. And I have a certain nostalgia for certain historical periods. I do. Yeah. I really spent a long time wishing I had been a poet in the 70s, somewhere between the 1790s and the 1820s. Mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. when I discovered Dunn and Herbert, I wanted to have been in the, you know, between the 1590s and the 1620s, you know, and you can learn from those poets, but you can't go back there. You have to take their song and make it new. And that's exactly. been my ever as a poet. Exactly. I'm so glad you brought up Singing Bowl because... I'm wondering about resonance. I'm wondering whether there was a resonance that you either sensed at the time or you can look back and see now between this progression that you describe or this maturing as a poet and your own progression in the Christian life. Mm. And I wonder if you would at all see it as, as a movement from the head to the heart. Mm. Gosh, that's a lot in that question. And this is there are several questions packed into one. Resonance. I see the singing bowl as my muse telling me how to write poetry. But by the time I'd finished the poem, I realized it was also about prayer and meditation. Mm. And that itself was hugely important for me. It was like the two halves of my mind, the priestly part and the poetry, really coming together and saying, we're doing the same thing here. As a phrase in a Seamus Heaney poem also helped me, just a phrase in in one of the Station Island poems where he says, read poems as prayers. You know, those things came together. But a line, stay with the music. Words will come in time. My initial sense of that line was literally to think back to, if I go back to my 16-year-old self in Keats's house, reading The Ode to a Nightingale, which has a wonderfully, it has one of the most unpromising starts of any poem in English. You know, my heart aches and a drowsy numbness pains my sense, as though of hemlock I had drunk or emptied some dull opiate to the drains one minute past and lethe words had sunk. So you've got like ache, dull, drains, sunk. You know? I just... Yeah, I'm totally in the floor by the time you've just said that. I was feeling really depressed at the time, so I was going, I'm with you. And suddenly the poem changes. Tis not through envy of thy happy lot, but being, there we are, being too happy in thy happiness, that thou, light-winged dryad of the trees, in some melodious plot of beech and green and shadows numberless, singest of summer, in a full-throated ease. And that, like, 
beach and green and shadows, numberless, melodious plot. Oh, what is what is that? Suddenly there is extraordinary music. And I was I was very helped just to the point where I was beginning to dare to publish my poetry. And I had the good fortune to be asked to interview Seamus Heaney when he was getting the Wilfred Owen Memorial Prize back in 2002. And we talked about the war poets, you know, Wilfred Owen and so on. And he started quoting the amazing sonnet of, 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 of Owen's anthem for doomed youth. So you remember what passing bells for these who die as cattle, only the monstrous anger of the guns. Only the stuttering rifle's rapid rattle can patter out their hasty orisons. So he's quoting this and he says, listen to the music of that. Just, you know, the, the sound of it. And yet it's terrible. He's describing something terrible. He's destroy, describing a cacophony. And he said, Heaney said he thought, it was just a brilliant metaphor. He came here, picked out of nowhere. He said he thought all those prosodic elements, the, the meter, the alliteration, the assonances, the rhymes, the, 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 the beat of the iams, all of that. He said, I think all those musical elements, in life, they're a bit, he said, like the joists under a floor or the, the hidden springing under a dance floor. You don't immediately see them, but they give, they support something. There's a musical underpinning. And then he said this, there's one sentence I'll never forget. He said, the heavier the weight of grief a line is asked to bear, the more beautifully and musically it must be undersprung. So I thought, that's brilliant. And he said, it's the beauty that helps you bear the grief. Now, I think I had presumed, and I think a lot of other modern poets presumed that if you're writing about a horrible, jagged thing, you write horrible, jagged poetry. And no, no, no. The whole point about poetry and music, really beautiful, elegiac music, is that the beauty allows you to bear the grief. And that was a revelation to me because I always felt a sort of hidden accusatory voice saying, oh, you're just writing nice, light, romantic verse because you mm. don't like the modern age you're living in. And I began to think, no, 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 the romantics were onto something. They brought a line of beauty into this thing, which is exactly what we need in the age we live in. When the romantics were writing, life then wasn't any less brutal. Absolutely. I mean, it was terrible. And obviously, you know, they weren't, they were living in a world without anesthetics or vaccines. Obviously, Keats was, you know, suffered extraordinarily, you know, you know, Shelley was so attuned to the injustice, the social injustices of, 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 of England and Europe at the time, you know, they were well aware. Of, of, you know, in Shakespeare's phrase, the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. <laughs> but anyway, going back to your other question about how does the maturing or the hearing or the tuning as a poet relate to faith? I think the answer is very strongly because I think our faith essentially is a response to what God has already done and is doing in Christ for us. He, he in some sense, well, he makes the first move by creating us in the first place. And in our salvation, I think he also very much makes the first move. And it's a question of tuning ourselves in to listen to him. I mean, it's not for nothing that George Herbert in his poem, Prayer, at one point calls prayer a kind of tune which all things hear and fear. Prayer is always a kind of listening, a tuning in, an awareness of God. Mm -hmm. So this is this is my 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 poetic response to the one phrase, a kind of tune, a kind of tune, a music, everywhere and nowhere, love's long lovely undersong, a trace in time, a grace note in the air, born to us from the place where we belong, on every passing breeze and in the breath of every creature, all things hear and fear. For faintly, through our fall, we too may hear the strong song of the sun that undoes death. And one day we will hear it unimpaired, the joy of all the sorrowful, the song of all the saints who cry how long, the hidden hope of all who have despaired. He sang it to his mother in the womb, and now... It echoes from his empty tomb. Ah. In a sense, that also bears some relation to the very beautiful verse that opens John Donne's hymn to God, my God, in my sickness, where he stayed in London in the plague and 
had the symptoms and thought he was dying. And he wrote this, as he thought, final poem. And he, the opening verse, he describes the whole of his life as a kind of tuning up. So he says, since I'm coming into that holy room, where with thy choir of saints forevermore, I shall be made thy music. I tune my instrument here at the door. Yeah. Uh, absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And this, the, the word that stood out to me most in that poem you just read, Malcolm, is undersong. Mm. And when you were describing the, the musicality of a poem that is in touch with reality, it's in touch with a reality which is musical. The song has already been sung. Mm. And so in any vocation that wants to tap into that, whether that's ministry or chair making or poetry or whatever it is, there's going to be that song that's going to be, the song will be expressed, mm. but it will also catch you and receive you. And you, mm. there was, there was some image of springs. There's a springing. Yes, exactly. So yeah, that the that, more weight yeah. you throw at it, the more it, yeah, it's, it sort it, of it, 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 responds exactly, to you. Exactly. So, and of course, it was believed for a very long time. And in a sense, some physicists, I think, still believe it now, that essentially the cosmos as we have it arises out of music, out of harmony, out of the order of music. I mean, bizarrely, I think string theory now has that. It sees us as sort of kind of harmonics. I mean, it's very hard to get your mind around, but I remember going to some lectures on it in Cambridge. You know, they're, they're saying, even to go down to the atomic or the subatomic or the kind of little particles and quarks thing is you're still only dealing with something which is happening or has been produced in physicality. And there has to be a kind of source beyond that. And they posit the idea of these tiny, tiny, tiny strings is the metaphor they use, which are vibrating in 11 dimensions, it turns out. What? And that the, the, well, you know, you know, is it Schrodinger has that wonderfully said, Schrodinger said, the world is not simply stranger than we understand. It's stranger than we can understand. <laughs> so anyway, one of these ideas, I went to this lecture and this guy was playing harmonics on a string on a guitar and talking about how, you know, that touch at that point produces a sound which is more than the sum, as it were, of all the bits of the string. So one of the ways of thinking about, about the, the world is, for some contemporary things, is by a musical analogy. Now, of course, that's really interesting because if you go right back to ancient Greece, that's precisely what Pythagoras said, you know, and some of those ideas. But this this passed through into Christendom and into the main thinking of, of early Christian theologians and became what people called the music of the spheres. Mm -hmm. And one of the ideas there was that was that was that there is a music that we once would have been able to hear, but we can't hear now. I mean, there's a brilliant sermon of John Dunn's, and it's a brilliant sermon where he's trying to talk about the fall and the, the role of Christ cosmically in undoing that. And he says, he describes, he says, the whole cosmos is like a tuned instrument, all of God's creation. And it, he made it perfectly in tune. And he said, but, but it started, it went out of tune when the, when the, when the highest string, which is the angels, it's about the fall of Lucifer and the angel went down. And then, because they then, if it, everybody started tuning up or trying to tune up to, in fact, if you like, a bum note. And so the whole thing comes out. And he says, in order to tune an instrument, you don't need everything to be in tune. You just need one string in tune. And if one string is genuinely in tune, you can tune the whole instrument up. So he says, Messiah is that string. He sends Christ, you know, taught on the cross like who is perfectly in tune with the whole of god and with god's original intention and he asks us to become christ-like and to be in christ and to because now we can tune up again because we have one person that shows us entirely what it is to be a human being fully alive that's brilliant <laughs> oh that's brilliant you know so yeah 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 they knew how to preach him in those days <laughs> <laughs> Well, Malcolm, I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on the last part of that very packed question that I asked earlier about a movement from the head to the heart. And I'm going to confess that 
I often don't like this question because I, I feel as a person who really yeah. values the work of the head, the intellect, yeah. but is sometimes I think that movement needs to happen. So did you, did you find that happening? Yeah, in your yeah I think it does happen, but I think you can, you do it the other way around. I mean, interestingly, Coleridge in his biography, Literaria, uses that distinction of heart and head. And he's talking about how he appeared with his head to be going away from Christianity. But there was something that kept him, you know, he was reading Voltaire and taking a more, you know, ironic and cynical view of the world as a young man post-French Revolution. And, but he said he started reading the mystics, William Law and Jacob Bohm. And he said the writings of these mystics served to keep alive the heart in the head. This is what he says. For the writings of these mystics, acted in no slight degree to prevent my mind from being imprisoned within the outline of any single dogmatic system. They contributed to keep alive the heart in the head, gave me an indistinct yet stirring and working presentiment that all the products of the mere reflective faculty partook of death and were as the rattling twigs and sprays in winter into which a sap <laughs> was yet to be propelled from some root to which I had not penetrated that's an amazing he moves from that that's really interesting because he's saying the reflective effect of the patterns and branchings of thought are very important but there is always a danger that they become dry twigs and snap mm, yep they need to go down to a root and the root there is the heart and it's the heart that dwells in the heart of christ i mean another way of thinking about it in terms of our church life both life within any given individual church and our church life more generally and even ecumenically if you think about the, you know, the 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 night before Jesus dies, as that evening, as John describes it, you know, you've got Peter and everybody talking back and forth about who's going to betray you, and they're trying to, they're full of this head thing. And meantime, we're just told as a detail that the beloved disciple, the disciple, lent on Jesus' bosom all the way through all this theological debate and pronouncements and huge important things and the high priestly prayer and everything that everybody's done their theology from ever since. And he's just lying with his head on Jesus's chest. So the question you have to ask is, what is he hearing? Well, presumably with one ear, he's hearing all this theological discourse and debate. But with the other, he is simply hearing the heartbeat of Jesus. And in every church, and certainly in the big church, there has to be a church of John as well as a church of Peter. We need the beloved disciple with a leaning, listening to the heart of Jesus. We need Peter, in spite of the fact that he often puts his foot in his mouth to regard and organize things. But we need Mary of Bethany washing the feet of Jesus, you know. You know, we need Martha saying, what about the dishes, you know. I mean, we Right, have, exactly. You know, the fact is that the, the, the Gospels have given us, I mean, the very fact that there are, you know, that 12 disciples tells you that you cannot have a monochrome, monoglot, monocultural church and call it church. You know, because look at the disciples. You know? Yeah, this is not a clean system. Yeah. Hey there, podcast listener. If you've listened to the podcast for a while, you probably know that The Living Church is not just a podcast. Oh no, my friend. TLC is a publishing ministry with a unique magazine, independent church news reporting, a stellar theology blog, resources for parish ministry, many of them free. I could go on. Stop me now. Stop me now. We're rooted in the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion, but we have a big heart for the unity of all God's people. You know that I love that you're here, but I don't want you to just stay in the podcast space and miss out on other ways our ministry might serve you. You can go to livingchurch.org and see what all TLC offers. How can we serve you today? One way we might serve you is coming up in September. We're hosting an event with an amazing community of friends at All Souls Episcopal Church in Oklahoma City, a conference called The Human Pilgrimage. What does it mean to be human? How do we live fully as creatures loved, limited, and liberated by God? Join The Living Church September 26th to 28th in Oklahoma City and be refreshed by three days of world-class keynotes, friendship, and meditation on who we are as creatures in Christ. 
Right now, you also get 15% off all tickets with the promo code EARLYBIRD. Go to livingchurch.org forward slash events for more information and to buy your tickets. And I hope to see you there. Well, Malcolm, I'd, I'd love to go back to a couple of lines from the poem that you read a bit ago. Stay with the music, words will come in time. As we're thinking about Peter and John and after the resurrection of Jesus and all the disciples, the question, what now? And then we start to approach the day of Pentecost. These words, stay with the music, words will come in time, reminded me of disciples as they were looking up after the ascension. And the angel says, stay in Jerusalem. Stay in Jerusalem, yeah. And and what will come in time? Well, they didn't know, but it turns out words. (laughs) Words came in time. Indeed, yeah. With the um, gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift, I mean, Pentecost, the astonishing gift of, of language and communication. And, you know, the, it's really interesting, again, going back to our friends in the 16th and 17th century, Lancelot Andrews, slightly older contemporary of Dunn, was one of the key figures in the making of the, the King James Bible. He was commissioned to sort of sort it out at the 1604 Hampton Court Conference. And he was the one who said that every word of it must be read out loud so it sounds. So I once, in the when it was the 400th anniversary of the 1611, you know, authorised version, I was asked to contribute a paper to a book about it. And I decided to go and read all the Pentecost sermons that Lancel Andrews had preached between 1604, when they started, when the project began, and 1611, when it was completed, to see if there was any kind of theology of translation, theology mm-hmm. of language. Mm-hmm. And there certainly was. And a couple of just brilliant insights. So it was a commonplace, it was a thing regularly said in sermons, it was a patristic commonplace to make a link between the story of the confusion of tongues at the Tower of Babel and the gift of tongues at Pentecost. And the standard thing that people said was that the curse of Babel is reversed into the blessing of Pentecost, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Blessing of Pentecost simply undoes and reverses. So, so Andrews quotes that and he says, actually, that's not quite right. Because if God had simply wanted to undo and reverse the multiplication of tongues that, and confusion of them that happened at Babel, what would have happened is that all those people from Medes and Persia and parts of Asia, Phrygia, all, all that gathering, they wouldn't have said, we do hear them speaking the marvelous deeds of, 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 in our own mother tongue. They would have suddenly all understood classical Hebrew. Mm. If you were reversing Babel, plurality of language would have been abolished. But but Andrews goes on to say that is not what God did, because even the apparent curse of Babel, the creation of thousands of language, was itself a blessing because language itself is a blessing. And that the reason why Babel fell is precisely that it was monocultural. It was just this single dominant totalizing culture building itself up. What God did was cast it down and introduce staggering variety. But God blesses that variety. And he goes on to say the reason why why God gives the gift of languages at Pentecost and everybody, there's an instant translation, is that God wants to bless every one of those mother tongues. And then Andrews goes on to say, this is a direct quotation, he says, God does that because there are not yet tongues enough to praise the Lord. There must be more languages. And then finally, he says, he says, you might want to ask, isn't God afraid of translation? Isn't God afraid that his perfect and precious message can only be said in one language and that something would be lost in translation? And Andrew says, not at all. And if you want to know why God is not afraid of translation, you need to know that he himself has made the greatest translation of all. When the word was made flesh, the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily in Christ and is translated out of heaven into earth. And if God is prepared in the very eternity of the eternally begotten son to be translated into your flesh and blood and mine, then he's certainly not going to be worried about being translated into into Phrygian or Indonesian or, you know, he's going to be delighted. So, so, so it was. It's a it's a wonderful series of sermons in which he he delights in the diversity and variety of tongues as fitting to the praise of God. 
What a fun Pentecost sermon. Yeah. I want to hear a Pentecost sermon like that. Yeah, well, that's that sort of influenced my knowing all that, you know, influenced my own Pentecost sonnet, of course. But the mm. the actually, you know, the thing about stay and stay until you be clothed with power from on high, you know, in, in Luke. I've been writing about as it happens, I was commissioned by my publisher, Canterbury Press, to to write a series of sonnets for what's called the Stations of the Resurrection. So we have that in our Anglican or you know, Church of England book called Times and Seasons which is sort of extra material you can use liturgically in the different seasons. And this includes a sequence of 19 stations of the resurrection, which basically go through all the resurrection appearances, but then include Ascension, Pentecost, and Christ meeting Paul on the road to Damascus. So it goes goes right from the angel and the earthquake in Matthew to the, and they reckon, to find themselves 19 different stations. One of which is Jesus saying, hang on, let's see if I can. Um, yeah, here we are. Jesus, Luke 24, 44 to 49. So this is the, um, don't leave, don't leave the city, don't leave it. I, I came out on my one like this. This hasn't, hasn't been seen the light of day yet. So this is, I'm imagining Jesus speaking to them. I'm expanding on the words in, in, in Luke 24, from 44 to 49. God's glory waits to shine afresh in you, to recreate you with his kindling breath. For all I promised you is coming true. The breath of life has burst the gates of death. No need to leave the place I've given you, the world I love and gave my life to save. Stay in the city till it all comes true. The Father's spirit raised me from the grave, and I will send that spirit down on you. The poor fools who claim power in this world have toiled in vain for nothing but a lie. Pilate and Caesar, Herod, all have failed, but you'll be clothed with power from on high to share a kingdom that can never die. Malcolm, thank you for sharing that. It's going to be published, I think, in time for next Easter next year. But it's not just me. It's a three-way thing. Bishop Gooley, the, the, uh, the Bishop of Chelmsford, who is herself Persian and is a very, very interesting woman and talking about languages and translations and so on. So she's writing a series of prose reflections on each of the stations. I'm writing the poetry. And then there's an artist who's doing some astonishing paintings of each of the stations. And oh, to bring that out as a book. Lovely. Sometime early next year, I guess. Just the, this is just a comment, not a question, but the images surrounding, approaching and surrounding the day of Pentecost. It's almost like all of these, the day of Pentecost and all the images surrounding it, the, the being clothed, the wind and the breath, the fire. If you took poetry, ancient, let's say ancient poetry or art or philosophy, they're going to engage these kinds of images. So it's oh, sort absolutely. Of... I mean, they're primal. In fact, when I came to yeah. write the Song of the Pentecost, it, I suddenly I was looking at the great images, the great primal, primal iconic images of of the spirit, and I thought, well, this is interesting. Fire is clearly one. Flowing water is clearly one because because I, you know, the fountain welling up within you, you know, the waters of baptism. So I thought, that's interesting, fire and water. What else is there? And I thought, well, obviously the word spirit itself, pneuma in Greek, means both spirit and wind and breath, as ruach does in Hebrew. And I thought, well, this is very interesting because, of course, the in all cultures, certainly in the West, there are four primal elements, which are, you know, wind, water, fire, and earth. So I thought, well, that's, Three out of four ain't bad, you know. Like, where's the air? And then I thought, it's not there at all. And then I suddenly thought, oh, of course, that's why the spirit needs to come on us, is why it comes on Christ, because we're the earth. That's what Adam means, you know, it means person of clay. And we remain no more than earth and dust until what happens. Obviously, in the Genesis narrative, you get two movements to the spirit, don't you? In the Genesis, you have the big cosmic, you know, the Ruach, you know, the spirit of God moves upon the face of the deep in the primal creation. But then you get this second sending of the spirit, which is much, much more intimate, where he makes the person and he breathes, he breathes the spirit intimately into this clay and it becomes a living being. I always think there's a really interesting thing to observe if you think about how how the New Testament rereads the Old Testament. There's a kind of chiasmic structure. I don't know if you notice this, that in the Old Testament, you start with the cosmic creative spirit. 
in the first verses of Genesis. And then you move towards this intimate personal spirit in the creation of the Adam. Now, in the New Testament, it's the other way around. The moment that corresponds to the intimate breathing comes on, on the Easter evening in the upper room where Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the spirit. And that is followed by the cosmic explosion, which is the day of Pentecost itself. And I think there's a reason for that. I think in the beginning of the new creation, the beginning of the new creation is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the singularity. That's the event that started all off. That's why the new creation, in a sense, has already burst into life in the midst of us. And we're, we're living simultaneously in the two things. But that the new creation is to be personal from the get-go. It's not going to be, I made some stuff and now I put some people in it. Mm-hmm. Now, the people in it, are going to totally transform the stuff and all the stuff is going to become personal too. That's why the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. This reminds me, again, C.S. Lewis has to come up for me at least once in every interview, but this reminds me of his wondering whether animals that have close relationships with humans Mm. don't somehow take on... Kind of, yeah, I sort of get lifted into, they don't not become themselves, but they sort of become a new level of themselves. And so he theorizes that maybe that's a reason that people might, for example, you know, have a reunion with animals as well as people that they loved in in the new creation. Well, I I think, I think, I think that's true. He puts it even more, not with the specific example of animals, but in that amazing essay, The Grand Miracle where he talks about the whole descent, incarnation, resurrection, and ascent of Jesus as like a single miracle. And he says what he's gone down to find. He imagines Jesus as a diver going down and down and down through death. And then, and then a diver struggling to find something that's been lost and to bring it up on his shoulders. And he says what he brings up is human nature, but with it, the whole of nature, mm-hmm. you know, that the, 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 there's, I mean, just as the fall of the world in some sense was tied up with our choices. So the renewing of all things, the lifting of the veil, I behold, I make all things new. I mean, it's very interesting. I remember hearing Tom Wright talking about this, about that passage in one of Paul's letters where he says, wherever anybody where is in Christ, there is a new creation. And, and he says, there isn't even a there is. He says, where you are in Christ, new creation. <laughs> yeah. 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 Malcolm, I wonder if I could switch gears and ask you some about language and your love of English specifically. Where does that come from? Because we we're, well, we're talking about talking about roots and Pentecost be, and you yeah, know, no, I was very fortunate to be brought up in a household where you know there were books and there was good speech. And well, my mother in particular, my mother's I'm half Scots half English and the Scots side of me is very Scots like so my mother was <laughs> and my grandmother was a very good Scots poet a published Scots poet and my my mother had an extraordinary retentive memory and quoted to me wonderful poetry I mean Coleridge and all kinds of people from the time I was very little so I was aware of these beauties of language and as I say then I fell in love with the certain sound of it with Keats but it was actually Heaney, an Irishman, who then chose me the riches of the English language, because there's a wonderful bit in, in one of his poems in North where he's trying to get back to an Anglo-Saxon route. But instead of going straight to it, he takes you on a journey. He says, I push back through dictions, Elizabethan canopies, Norman devices, the erotic mayflowers of Provence, the ivied Latins of the churchmen, until I come to the shope's twang. The shope was the, the instrument played by the bard. The hard, the iron clash of consonants cleaving the line. In the coffered riches of grammar and declension, I found banhus. Now, banhus means bone house, and it's the word for it. So Heaney just to get you to the fact that he wants to talk about Ban Hoos and he wants to think about what that meant and what takes you lovingly back. And if you see what he's doing, he's showing you the layering of the English language. So the English language, you know, you get 
you get four or five languages into the bargain for one, you know, it's, it's you know, you, you speak English, but if you speak English, you speak Anglo-Saxon, you speak a certain amount of Norse, you speak a huge amount of French, Norman French, but underneath and through it all, particularly through the Norman French, you speak a great deal of Latin. I mean, people tell me, oh, I don't have any Latin. I say, look, you have thousands. Every word in the English language ending A-T-I-O-N is a Latin word. Right. You've got it all. So, and then now, of course, we've got, and we have, and it's sad that we have so few survivals of Gaelic and Celtic, but we have a few. And of course, we've brought in words from, from India, you know, pajamas, juggernaut, jamboree, you know, it's wonderful. So we, we're very fortunate in English to have a language which is, which is full of the sounds and roots and echoes of other languages. And the way words have traversed and developed is itself really fascinating so i felt that anyway i got a bit of it from heaney but when i became much more interested and seriously interested scholarly interested in the inklings and i began to read all of them in depth of course i realized owen barfield was this was this summary of this film for owen barfield the the semantic history the, the, the semantic development the development of meanings of the same word that's passed on over, over many centuries and in the way it grows and develops was for him a map of the mind itself, a map of the way consciousness itself was changing. And hmm. you could see how words used earlier in one way and now used in a different way showed the way we changed our thought. And I became really interested then in sort of knowing the roots of words. And there's always poetry in the roots of language. The Anglo-Saxon poem, The Dream of the Rood, was extremely important to me. And part of part of what brought me to faith, and uh, as it was, it turns out for Lewis as well. You know, he specifically named checks the dream of the ruin in one of his writings about that. And of course, that's an astonishing poem because in, in it, the cross itself speaks. I mean, it, it's it's amazing. There is something about the guttural, guttural monosyllabic character of older English. And and how how the I think it's the fifty most basic words in English vocabulary you can trace back to ancient oh, yeah. English words but, like course, you know the thing about old English was also that they had this extraordinary thing which they shared with the Norse of what were called kennings where they put two words together in a kind of riddling way so that they wouldn't say a word they'd say so i mean and to, well dream of the root you know dream of the root starts you know what what me befell to me and then he says see then rayod baron rest of and you can hear so rayod baron literally means word bearers he's talking about people I mean, it's translated somewhere into modern uses when men with their words were resting. But the point is, he says, I'm not going to say a person. I'm going to say a word bearer. That's the very essence of what it is to be a human being. But they did that all the time. I mean, you know, they wouldn't call a spade a spade if they could call it an earthbiter. You know? <laughs> and and he, Heaney revives that in his lovely poem about the shipping forecast. He goes, there's a bit where he goes, sirens of the tundra. And then he says, of eel road, keel road, seal road, whale road, raise their wind compounded keen behind the bays. Now, those words, eel road, keel road, whale road, are all Anglo-Saxon kennings for the sea. When you were talking about Seamus Heaney and his his movement, how he describes a movement from contemporary English back into this yeah. sort of dark, boggy, yeah. monosyllabic English of and 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 poetic and strangely theological, how yeah, you know, like yeah. of old English. I this just made me think so strongly again of the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and fills the disciples, fills human beings as a gift. Everything inside the human person from the most primitive, the most primal, the most archetypal parts of ourselves get taken up into the life Absolutely. of God and, and yeah. includes the entire human past. I mean, Jesus' mm. descent into hell, the preaching to the spirits yeah. in prison, this movement down it's, it's and then the up spirit. again. It, it is the spirit that raises Jesus from the dead. You know, it's, uh, yes. Yeah. 
No, I think this is really important. I, one of the things that I think has been really important, certainly in, in kind of Protestant and, and Anglican circles, is the charismatic renewal coming when it did, sort of mid to late, well, for the Anglicans, you know, kind of mid to late 20th century. It was just at the point where we were most caged and incarcerated in a very reductive, you know, what Charles Taylor would call imminent frame, highly head-spaced, you know, over-rationative, you know, sort of analytical dismembering of things. But there were people who were doing incredibly hard-edged theologies of double predestination and getting themselves absolutely tied up into knots. I mean, the carapace of a sort of dried out dogmatic system. Suddenly the Holy Spirit comes sweeping in and people who, who, who could not have got to it any by, by a series of logical steps are suddenly find their imaginations released, suddenly find an opening and a freeing and a freeing to each other. And there was always an ecumenical element to the charismatic renewal, it seemed to me as well. They suddenly, people found each other friends. And I think that came as a gift because we needed, like he literally needed to send the spirit to wash or blow away the various little artifices that we had constructed with our poor intellects. Not that the, the spirit is ever against the intellect, the spirit renews the intellect as well. But there had been, I mean, I think for a lot of people, certainly for me, at a certain point in my life, the experience of singing or praying in tongues was an experience of complete liberation from the categories into which I had been placing things up to that point. It's not that I couldn't then return to perfectly good reasoned thought and right intellectual discourse. Right. But something of the, I mean, Coleridge says somewhere that it's the philosopher's privilege to distinguish, but not to divide. That when you make distinctions between things, you should never presume that there's a hard and fast division between them. There's always a current flowing between these things. There's always a kind of a sliding scale, a polarity, a kind of, you know, spectrum. And I think one of the things that the, the coming of the spirit to the churches in our time has done is to help people see the whole where they'd previously seen the divisions. Yeah, yeah. Would you please read us in closing your poem, Pentecost? Yeah, okay. So, so interesting, wide-ranging discussion. Quite a lot of it comes back, actually, through into this poem, which is also about translation. So, Pentecost. Today, we feel the wind beneath our wings. Today the hidden fountain flows and plays. Today the church draws breath at last and sings as every flame becomes a tongue of praise. This is the feast of fire, air and water, poured out and breathed and kindled into earth. The earth herself awakens to her maker, translated out of death and into birth. The right words come today in their right order, and every word spells freedom and release. Today, the gospel crosses every border. All tongues are loosened by the Prince of Peace. Today, the lost are found in his translation, whose mother tongue is love in every nation. I've been talking today with Malcolm Geit. He has shared his time, his poetry with us. Malcolm, thank you for being here today. My pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. In two weeks, tune in for an episode you asked for. The Reverend Aaron Zimmerman is back by popular demand for a part two on effective executive functioning as a pastor. He'll be joined by the Reverend Canon Kimberly Filer, who kicks you-know-what in the world of business and is here to help us apply organizational principles to our lives as church leaders. Until then, our producer is Leslie Thompson. I'm Amber Noel, your host and it's been good to be with you. Peace.